blessing as the choir comes down. We'll get our Bibles out. Open up to the book of Ecclesiastes. Wow, not Galatians. Ecclesiastes, so if you just uh, go to the center of your Bible, you'll find uh, Psalms and Proverbs, and then just go past Proverbs, you get to Ecclesiastes. If you get to Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, you went too far back up. You can find Ecclesiastes chapter 5 on page 767. 767. We're starting a new series, as I've already said. Uh, just for a few weeks, we're going to talk about worship. Uh, we're going to uh, call this series, Prepare Ye the Way. We're going to say some things this morning uh, that God has laid on my heart. I've been uh, thinking about uh, these three weeks for almost a year now, just waiting for God to uh, complete the work in my own heart and just make sure that I uh, was hearing clearly from Him that which we would talk about and uh, got the opportunity several months ago to share this passage that we're going to look at this morning with our choir. I felt like it was important for me to uh, teach these things to those who uh, are lead worshipers before we... Uh, learned them congregationally, but nonetheless, it would be a very uh, instructive and important uh, message that God has before us this morning from Ecclesiastes 5. As we look at uh, what I've entitled, Only Fools Rush In. Only Fools Rush In. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on the teaching of His Word. Father, we thank You for Your perfect gift in the Scripture. And Lord, we thank You for this passage. We thank You for uh, Your servant Solomon as he recorded the things that you breathed into his heart, Lord God. And Father God, thank you for preserving it all these thousands of years that we might have it, Lord God. And we thank you for the perfect truth that is represented here, that it's intended and applies directly to our lives. And Father God, we ask now that the Holy Spirit of God would come and take the sounds that proceed from my mouth and implant them in the hearts of the hearers, Lord. We need your help to give us ears to hear to prepare our hearts to receive, that we might respond by glorifying you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, in 2011, I had the opportunity to travel to India. And, uh, you know, as most of you know, I've uh, traveled all over the world doing various uh, types of mission work. I got invited to go to India to teach in a seminary for a week. And so I was teaching... Uh, Indian pastors in the state of, uh, well, we flew into the city of Delhi, which is an enormous uh, city, uh, before we uh, traveled out, ventured out from there. But while I was in uh, Delhi, uh, it struck me as soon as I hit the ground that India was going to be unlike any other place that I'd been. I was going to see things and experience things that were unlike anything I've ever seen or experienced before. It's a very strange and unique place uh, very dark, uh, but but very uh, just strange, I guess, to say the least. Well, a few miles from the airport in Delhi, uh, you can see one of the strangest things you'll ever see, which is a giant Airbus A300 uh, jet passenger plane sitting in a man's yard in this, like, field next to his house. Uh, this uh, man... Bahadur Gupta uh, purchased the plane and had it 
dismantled, moved to his house where he then set it up on uh, concrete pylons and reassembled it. And uh, why in the world would somebody have a giant Airbus A300 in the, beside their house? Well, he, what he does is he set it all up and he sells tickets to the locals. Uh, they pay uh, 150 rupees, so about uh, $2, to get on the plane and uh, experience what it would be like to be on an airplane. Now, you got to ask some questions about this because that sounds a little odd. So here's what happens. You would think that, well, that, that's just ridiculous. But I mean, man, Captain Gupta goes all out. He's dressed in his airline captain suit. His wife is the co-pilot. He has stewardesses. You, uh, he la- allows the people on. They all take their seats. He gives them boarding passes. He scans the passes as they come on. They all take their seats. He comes over the intercom, says various things. He probably go through the whole, you know, here's the seat belt. Here's how it clicks together. If the thing drops down, put it over your head, all that. And then, uh, the, the plane supposedly takes off, which it doesn't. Then uh, the stewardess has come down with a little cart and snacks and drinks for the people. And uh, I'm not making this up. And then they, and so they, you know, just experience the whole thing. And then it ends, the, the tour ends with a simulated crash landing where he sets off the alarm, deploys the uh, giant slide out the door, and the people go sliding down the slide out of the plane. Now, here's the most crazy part of this story. Is that there is a line a block long every single day it's open to get on board. Because in India, less than 3% of the 1.2 billion people that live there will ever, ever have the opportunity to fly in an airplane. And so for a few rupees, they're able to get as close to experiencing airline travel as they will ever come. Now, it sounds pretty ridiculous to sit in a plane that's sitting on concrete blocks that everyone knows isn't going to fly and to pretend like you're going to fly. But I would say to you that those people sitting on that plane is a lot like many people sitting in pews this morning. You see, that plane's never going to take flight. They're never going to, they're never going to know what it's like to look out the window and to, uh, and to see the, the, the land from thousands of feet in the air. They're not going to ever know what it's like to, to pass through the clouds and that, that strange sort of out of body experience it is the first time you do that, realizing that you can't see anything as the plane goes through the clouds and then it bursts over the top of the clouds and then to see what you've never seen before, which is the top down view of the, the clouds and to realize the amazing and awesome splendor of what it is to soar through the air. They're never going to experience that. A lot of people come into churches and sit in pews 
And they go through the motions of worship, but they never take flight. They never experience what it's like to really encounter the living God, to really worship God in spirit and in truth, to to really come to to a place where the the glory and majesty of God comes to bear on their lives, where their their heart beats and their palms sweat because of the, the reality of what's happening in this moment. See, a lot of people don't know what that's like. They're there. They're going through the motions everyone else is going through. But they never take flight. And you see, the reason for that is, is that when we gather to worship, there's nothing special about this building. There's nothing special about the physical location that we are. But there is something very special about the gathering of God's people. And when we gather to a place like this and we come to worship, the time of worship is the theater of the Holy Spirit. Just the mention of the Holy Spirit, it makes people uncomfortable. I was thinking this week about why that is. Why are people so uncomfortable about a conversation regarding the Holy Spirit? I think what it is is because with the other members of the Trinity, we feel like we can somehow contain them. In other words, we can have a conversation about God the Father because He's not here to us. We can even have a conversation about Jesus because, again, we can make distance between See, it would be very, let's face it, it would be uncomfortable this morning if Jesus walked in. The problem with the conversation about the Holy Spirit is you can't distance yourself from Him. That He's here. And He's really close. And the thing about the Holy Spirit is, is that He's easily offended. That He's very particular. That oftentimes we overlook, maybe not intentionally, but we overlook the things that we ought not overlook with regard to Him. And so it's very easy, very common for the worship experience in our enlightened technological culture to to just be quenched and to just sit in a plane and pretend as if we're flying when we've never even left the ground. Now, if we were preaching through the book of Ecclesiastes, what I would tell you is that Ecclesiastes is like, think of it as Solomon's journal. Think of it as the wisest man who ever lived who gave us the book of Proverbs. Think of this as his personal journal. Think of this as his memoirs about about life and all that he's learned and all of his struggles. And so we get to peer into uh, his thoughts and the way God inspired him to write these words for our benefit and edification so many years later. 
And we also need to understand that as he's journaling, he's, he's, in, a, he's in a context, in a culture not so very different from the one that we're in right now. He's, he's amongst the people who have played fast and loose with the Word of God. He is amongst a, a, a people who have not really taken the things of God as, serious as seriously as they ought to. And God has gone to such great lengths to make crystal clear His desires for His people. And yet, simple commands like, do this and you shall live. Don't do this or it will go poorly for you if you do. Those simple commands have been ignored. And understand that before we look at this passage of Scripture, I don't mean ignored in the sense that they've been utterly rejected. I mean ignored in this sense. I mean ignored in the sense that a husband maybe, a new husband who marries the woman of his dreams, I have the distinct privilege of standing in a place just like this oftentimes next to a young groom watching the back door swing open, all the people stand and suddenly the bride escorted by her father comes in and all the glory and splendor of that moment Hair perfectly done, makeup done, just radiant. A day she's dreamt about and waited for. His heart's beating, which then makes my heart beat because I start thinking, oh, you're not going to pass out on me, are you? And <laughs> But you have to wonder, will it stay like that? Or will there come a day when that, when the splendor of the wedding dress is all but gone, relegated to a photo album that's piled up under some laundry somewhere that nobody looks at? And that man, his heart starts to wane. His affections start to wander. He starts to notice the beauty of other ladies. He starts to allow himself to ponder on things he ought not ponder on. You see, he's still legally married. He hasn't rejected marriage. He's married. Legally. And physically. But is he really married? Is he really upholding the covenant that he made? If he keeps on, there'll come a time when even when he's holding his own wife, he may be 
fantasizing about another. Now, she doesn't know the difference. She can't tell. She can't read his mind. But the one he made the covenant to can. You see, when we come in here to worship, we're not outright rejecting. We're here. We're singing the songs. We've got our Bibles open. We're listening to the sermon. We're going through the motions. But are we really here? Because I can't read your mind. I'm just like that wife. But I'm not the one who matters. You see, the, the Holy Spirit, he's, he's finicky. He's picky. He's easily offended. Because he knows. He knows what you're thinking right now. He knows where your mind is. And so that's the way to approach the text in Ecclesiastes 5. It's to understand this is an outright rejection. It's secret rejection. And you know what the danger is? The danger that's before us this morning is to trivialize that which God has ordained. Like if you just say to me, Pastor, well, I don't want to offend the Holy Spirit. I don't want to, I don't want to be like that. What do I need to do? You need to beware not to trivialize that which God has ordained. There's a good way for you to understand. How to be ready for the Spirit of God to move in your life. So let's look at Ecclesiastes 5. We're going to go real slow. Beginning in verse 1. Point number one, beware how you prepare. Beware how you prepare to worship. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 1, walk prudently when you go to the house of God. We'll stop there. Walk prudently when we go to the house of God. In other words, what Solomon is instructing us to do is to take great caution to pay attention to, to beware that we are guarding our steps as we approach the time of worship. We haven't even got to worship yet. Solomon is, is saying, you know, you need to beware how you prepare even to go to worship. Now, this is a man who knows a lot about worship. He knows a lot about preparing to go to the temple. 153,000 men labored for seven years to complete the temple. Solomon's temple, we call it. The temple of God. The most extraordinary, ornate, complex, wonderful worship facility that's ever been dreamt of on this earth. Solomon knows all about worship. And he knows about preparing to go to worship. And so he says, before you do anything, you need to guard your steps. You need to... Walk prudently. 
Pay attention to what you're doing as you're approaching the house of God. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to contrast the way that we come to church with the way that people in our culture go to a football game. You see, yesterday was a big day in college football. And here's how it went down. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people gathered. Hours and hours and hours before the game was ever even going to start. Out in the parking lot of their various stadiums. And they engage in this activity that's been known as tailgating. And they precede their time of worship with tailgating. Now, their time of tailgating is preceded by a great time of preparation. You see, somebody had to go to the store and buy all the things that were needed. Somebody had to make sure that all the gas tanks were filled and that all the supplies were there and that everything was in order and pack it all up and make sure it was there. And once that was done, then they traveled to the place and got to their spot. They've invited all their friends and everybody comes. And so all the structure is set. Everything is organized so that there's this great anticipation of what has not even yet come. You see, even the tailgating, it seems like a like an unbelievable celebration. Contrast that to the way you came to church this morning. Many people in this room, you just got up, threw some junk together, slept to the last minute, hit the snooze button 14 times, Brushed a couple teeth that we could see, got in the car and rushed down here. (laughs) Praise God, chewing gum. Man, what's wrong with that picture? How could that be right? Do we really believe that we can come into a place like this in a time like this and worship an infinitely holy God just by rushing into the sanctuary? By squeaking in, you know, ten minutes late after the first song? After the first couple baptism videos? Just make sure you get here by the time the, the sermon starts. I mean, every single week, the service starts. And then after the first song, the back doors open and here comes the flood. Now, I want you to know something. I understand. I understand full well two things. I understand circumstances and I understand spiritual warfare. And so let me just say a few words about those two things, because if I don't, then the enemy is going to use them to great benefit against you in your life. Circumstances. I understand that there are times when you get up, you're prepared, you get your family ready to go, you get the kids dressed, and just as you're going out the door, little Johnny pukes all over you. And you got to go back in and start all over again. And so when, the, when you come strolling in, Ten minutes late, 
We're glad you're 10 minutes late because we don't want to smell what would have happened if you wouldn't have changed clothes. I understand flat tires. I understand when there's an 18-wheeler jackknife on the interstate. I understand all those things. And certainly God does too. And what you want to do is persevere through those circumstances and make sure that, that you come. And don't ever think that because of some set of circumstances or some spiritual warfare that's trying to keep you from getting here, that if you can't get here at just the right time, you're not going to come at all because then the devil wins. That's not what I'm saying. This has nothing to do with being the on-time patrol. This is about you personally and your preparation to come to worship. That's what this is about. This is about you lingering around and lollygagging around and not doing the things you ought to do and not, frankly, just not being prepared to worship and just showing up 10 minutes late, not one Sunday, but every Sunday. And then getting offended when I talk about it only because you know it's true. Have you thought about what the sermon's going to be on the night before church? About 95% of the time, you know what I'm going to be talking about on Sunday morning and Sunday night. Because I'm preaching through something. And so if you, if you opened the Bible and read the next passage and, and pondered on that and thought about how it might apply to your life or what God might say to you the following morning just to prepare your heart for the message that's coming so that when you enter into this place, you already have an anticipation and a a sense of longing for what God might do. Prepare yourself. Walk prudently. Guard your steps on the way to the house of God. You want to have an expectation when you come to worship. You want to have an anticipation when you come to worship. Not because you got a great pastor, not because you got great worship leaders, because you got a great God. That why wouldn't you be filled with anticipation? Why wouldn't you be filled with expectation? You're coming to worship the King of the universe. The, the, the great God who reigns over all things. Why would you not? Why wouldn't you come with a, with a, with a heart that's just beating for something, uh, to happen? Knowing that, that not only can God do anything that He wants to do, Not only can He resolve any of the struggles and trials that you're dealing with right now, He can work in the areas of your life that you don't even know you need work in. That ought to be exciting to you. Do you on a regular basis just simply reflect on the reality that the greatest blessing in your life is when you hear from God? That it's the greatest thing that can happen to you. There shouldn't be any joy in your life higher than hearing from God. That when God speaks into your life, that is, that is amazing. It is wonderful that nothing can rival that experience in the heart of a believer. Do you tell God prior to coming to the house of the Lord to worship Him? Do you tell Him, do you remind Him for your own benefit how desperate you are? 
how needy you are, how grateful you are. So Solomon says, before you even begin, guard your steps. He goes on, he says, and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools. It's interesting to me that he draws this correlation between hearing and giving. I think that this little phrase right here is the Bible's way of addressing the consumer mentality that we have today about worship. You see, a lot of people are under the delusion that worship is about what they can get. And so people will, you know, they, 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 they say, well, I really didn't like the songs we sang this morning, or I didn't like the sermon, or I didn't like this, or it was too hot, or it was too cold, or it was this, or it was that. As if it's for you, as if it's about you. It's about God. It's about what He wants. It's about what He likes. And the problem is, is that when you come thinking that worship is, is about you, you're coming to give your opinion, to give your thoughts, to give your ideas about something. And you need to come to hear from Him. I love this, this quote from Stephen Carnock. It says, when we believe that we should be satisfied rather than God glorified in our worship, then we put God below ourselves as if He had been made for us rather than we had been made for Him. You see, that's what this coming to give the sacrifice of fools is all about. That word to hear, it doesn't just mean to hear like I heard a noise outside. It means to actually listen intelligently. It means to listen with a predisposition to obey that which you hear. It's a very specific word. The intention in the hearing is obedience. You see, once hearing becomes optional. Now I want you to think about this for a moment. I want you to think about in our, in our, in our liberated, man-centered, you know, us glorifying culture. Hearing can become optional. In other words, maybe maybe today you're not in the mood. You don't want to hear it. You're not. It's not for you. So hearing becomes optional. Or revelation is up for consideration. In other words, maybe the Scripture applies to you. Maybe you agree with the way it's been expounded. Maybe you don't. Maybe who knows? I don't know. There's a, But your opinion about how it goes. So now we've got optional hearing. We've got... Our consideration on God's revelation. Well, once that happens, all our time and energy and effort, it simply becomes foolishness to God. It's just foolishness. Because at that moment, the Holy Spirit just checks out. Because He knows what you're thinking and what I'm thinking. He knows the thoughts and intentions of our heart. He knows what's rattling around in our brain. He knows all that. And so outwardly, you can appear to be as engaged as, as you've ever been, or you could be as, as responsive as you've ever been. But if inwardly, those things are really up for debate, then you just offend the Holy Spirit. And since worship is, the, is His theater, it just relegates what happens to sitting in a plane pretending to fly.
You see, we never want to leave worship and say to ourselves, oh, well, you know, we sang a few nice songs, we heard an interesting sermon, and then just go about our day. Just go about our day. Without wrestling through, well, what did God say today? What does it mean to me in my life? What does He intend for me to do? How do I respond to what I've heard? You see, you draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools. And then lastly, he says in verse 1, for they do not know that what they do is evil. The shocking thing about all this is that that the husband, who to you and I looks like he's loving his wife, he looks faithful and hardworking and diligent and wonderful. And what he is doing is evil. Just like the worshiper who sits in the pew, keeps their spot warm, but who hasn't given a second thought to preparing themselves to come to the house of the Lord, nor will there be a second thought the minute I say the benediction, out the door we go. Either onto our cars and mowing the grass or doing what we want to do or off to find out what the snacks are in the Sunday school room today. The Bible says it's evil. See, the, re- the reality that, that far and away, that the, the, the greatest, most valuable, amazing gift in this life is to know God. To know God. Nothing can rival that. You understand that? I don't have a problem with football games. I don't have a problem with tailgating. I don't have a problem with a lot of things. But they're not better than God. They can't rival the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And what I don't want to do is I don't want to relegate the most spectacular opportunity of my life to some strict observances or some mechanical formalism. I don't just want to stand when it's time to stand or sit when it's time to sit. I want to be engaged with what God's saying and doing. I want to be certain that when I'm, when I'm singing something, I'm not thinking about myself. I'm not thinking about myself. I'm not thinking about how much I like this song, don't like this song. I'm not thinking about who's hitting what key, doing this, that, or the other. I'm thinking about the one I'm singing to. Here's a simple, simple illustration for you. The reason I'm, I know this so well is because I am a horrible singer, as many of you know. It's been recorded and all of you have saved that recording. I'm so grateful. So here's, here's what happens. In fact, we just did this uh, with my family on uh, Saturday night. We got together. Uh, my brother-in-law and his family came in from Florida and visited. It's my niece's birthday. So we come out. We've got a birthday cake. And what do we do? Sing. Great. 
So here we are, no music, you know, you know where to hide. So then here we go. So what do I do? I sing. You know why I sing? Because I love her and I want her to know that I love her. And so I'm singing happy birthday and I know it sounds horrible, but I don't care because I love her. I'm not thinking about how it sounds. I'm not thinking about how much I don't want to do that. I'm thinking about how much I love her. That's how you ought to sing when you come to church. So you guard your steps. You come to hear. And be careful that what you're doing is not evil. Number two, beware how you participate. You see, you've got to beware how you prepare. Then when you get here, you've got to beware how you participate. Verse 2 says this, Do not be rash with your mouth. Do not let your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Pretty sure we just sang that. What you need to focus on or underline in this passage are two words. The first word is rash. The second word is hastily. Because that's where the, the force of the statement is. Think of it this way. Think of a time when you've been in a, uh, in a waiting room. Maybe with a family member who's having major surgery. And so you're gathered together in the waiting room. There I'm sitting because I love the person, because I'm concerned about him, because I want the family to know that we care. And so when possible, there I am in the midst of them. So we're all gathered around the waiting room. But it's a long time. And we're waiting for those little updates, you know, like what's going on? We want the doctor to come in and say, you know, going okay, or we're, we're here, or we're there, or whatever's going on. We just want some word. And so there we're sitting. See, I thought about this when I was sitting there with Roy and Wanda was having surgery and I was there with Roy and, you know, their family was there and we were just having this wonderful conversation. We were talking about all sorts of things and we're just carrying on, carrying on. And man, Wanda, you don't realize this, but it took a long time, girl. And we waited and waited and waited and waited and it got a little... You know, nobody says anything, but it gets a little tense because you don't know. And so you're thinking like, you know... It's taking longer than we thought. So we're waiting, waiting. And so we're just trying to have all sorts of conversation to keep our mind off of what we're trying to not to really think about and just pass the time. And then suddenly the door opens and the doctor walks in. Now, here's what never happens in that moment. Nobody finishes their sentence. Nobody starts telling a new story. Nobody keeps everyone shuts their mouth completely. You know why? Because we want to hear what. He has to say. You can hear a pin drop. And we're all not only listening, we're watching the movement of the doctor's mouth. And we're trying to remember every nuance of what the doctor says. You know why? Because it's important. You don't come into worship hastily. You don't come in with uh, and be rash with your mouth. Because you have prepared yourself to come and hear. You see, both the word rash and the word hastily, although they're two different words, they both have the connotation of speed, of being in a hurry, of being in a rush, 
of wanting to just get through something as fast as you can. Isn't that interesting? It's interesting to me that no one's ever in a hurry on the golf course. But they're just fine to spend all day out there. No one's ever in a hurry at the ball game. I'm pretty sure the 103,000 people last night, they, there wasn't an empty seat when it wasn't like, oh man, it's going into overtime. I'm out of here. Nope. They stayed. They didn't complain because they were there to see something through to the end. Nobody was rash or hasty then. They waited it out. You know, my wife owned a hair salon for 20 years. You learn a lot when your wife owns a hair salon for 20 years. You learn a lot about women. You learn that women aren't in a hurry when they're getting their hair done. Women aren't hasty when they're at the beauty salon. I watched for 20 years. Woman after woman after woman after woman. Sit there for hours on end. Look like some kind of Martian with all sorts of chemicals processing on their head. Their head stuck in a big giant. Look like a flying saucer. Stuff blowing around. Hours, perfectly content, smile on their face, reading some magazine. They're not rash. They're not hasty. Nobody's anxious. Interesting, isn't it? We come to church and, son, we're tapping our foot. I see you back there checking your watch. We get to the invitation, you're out the door. I don't understand that. Wait a second, we've just gone through all of this. Now we're to the point where we're going to see what God's going to do. We're going to see how God's going to use that and leverage what's just happened in the lives of people around us. But it's not going to be my life. I'm out. And I don't really care what He does in anybody else's life. I'm gone. And if I disturb you on the way out, well, that's your problem. That's interesting to me. That's interesting. What does it tell us about ourselves? What does it teach us? Not about how we present ourselves, but about how we really think about worship. Are we like the psalmist in Psalm 84? who says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand days elsewhere. Is that our approach? Is that our feeling? Is that our, the overwhelming reality of, 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 our, of our affection? Or are we like what Solomon says in verse 3? For a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by his many hands. A dream comes through much activity. Well, what does that mean? Solomon is talking about when worship becomes an empty shell. When, when, the, when the worshiper disengages with the divine and begins to daydream about the 
delusional. When it just simply becomes, it's, it's too hard, pastor, it's too long. I can't stay focused. There's things around me that are, that are distracting me. There's, and so we begin to daydream off and we begin to start thinking about whatever it is. It's delusional. It really doesn't matter. We leave the divine. And this, this dream activity begins to take over. And then we start having this conversation with ourselves. Solomon calls it a fool's voice. The many words that we start going around and around in our head. You see, externally, again, we're married. Externally, we're here as the bride of Christ. But internally, we're unfaithful. We are unfaithful. We're thinking about what's in the crock pot. We're thinking about what we have to do. We're thinking about all the, the things that, w- that we're going to do with our afternoon or how long the wait's going to be at the restaurant or, or what, what's the situation on Monday morning or am I going to have to go in work, work early to get my work done or whatever the case may be. And the whole time the Bible's saying, no, no, just be still and know that I'm God. Because I will be exalted. Among the nations, Psalm 46.10, I will be exalted in all the earth. In other words, regardless of your stillness, regardless of your worship or my worship, He will be exalted. His exaltation is not dependent on our worship. The question is, will we be still and know that He is God? Number three, we need to thirdly beware what you promise. Look at verse four. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Now, we're not a people who make a lot of vows. In fact, the only time we really make vows now in our culture is, interestingly enough, at the marriage altar. But what Solomon's talking about are commitments. He's talking about the things that we commit to do. He's saying, now be sure that you keep the commitments that you make, that you honor the things that you say that you're going to do. Now, I want you to notice something very interesting about what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say, if you make a commitment. It says, when you make a commitment. In other words, the assumption, the pre, the, the presupposition is, is that, well, if, if you're, if you're amongst the people of God, if you've come to worship the King, then you understand that there will be commitments to be made. There will be vows to be kept. That we have a covenant relationship. That He is a promise-keeping God. He's a promise-making, promise-keeping. And that although He is utterly and completely perfect in His promise-keeping, that He never breaks a promise, violates a promise, does everything exactly the way He says He's going to do it, we, on the other hand, are not that way. And so we need to be careful. We need to make sure that what we've committed to do, we're going to do. That we don't break our vows and our commitments that we make before God. That the things that we say, God, this is what I will do. These are the things you've called me to do. This is how I'm going to respond. That we do those things. That like Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, our yes better be yes and our no better be no. 
that we need to be a person of integrity because he knows. He knows. I don't know and you don't know, but he knows. Notice what he says in verse 5. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. The Bible says it would have been better if you just didn't commit to anything. If you had just shucked the whole thing. Then to commit to something and not follow through with it. To pledge your allegiance to God in some area or some way. To serve God. To be a part of something. To whatever the case may be. And then to not live up to the expectations of that thing. And listen, I mean, that, that could, I could, I could go till tomorrow on this one. And after all I've said, you'd have to sit here. But I won't do that. See, I know I push you. But that's why I always tell you how much I love you and appreciate you. Because I know I push you. I know I lean on you. But listen, he leans on me. And I'm just telling you right now, I will obey him. And I'm going to say the things that he has for me to say, no matter how much I don't want to say them. And so he says, it'd been better off for you not to vow than to vow and not pay. Look at verse six. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin. Nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? Now what you need to understand here is that when, whenever you hear the word of God. So it could be hearing a sermon. It could be you reading the scripture and hearing yourself read. But whenever you hear the word of God, things start happening. That the Word of God is the catalyst to transformation in the human life. And why is that? Because worship is the theater of the Holy Spirit. Because the Word of God is, as Hebrews 4 says... It's living and powerful. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces even the deepest divisions of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. It's the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. But don't you see that when you, when you come in contact with the Word of God, things are going to start happening. God's going to start leaning into you and pushing into you. And then when He starts doing that, you then are at a crossroads. Because you now have to decide, how am I going to respond to what God is saying to me? How am I going to respond to what I'm hearing? God's not going to force anything on you. He's not going to force it on you. The proverbial ball is in your court. And so here's what Solomon's warning against. Deciding now and then denying later. You see, the warning here is not to make a commitment to God and then fail to follow through on it or in, even worse in this case, to then retract it. 
In other words, to sit before the messenger of God and then to say, no, no, that was an error. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't mean that. I know that I said that I would do this, but then when I actually started doing it, I realized how hard it was or what was involved in it. And I really didn't mean it. So I'm not really, I'm not going to do it. You see, I, I, I wanted to be a member of the church, but I really don't want to, I, re- I really don't want to participate. I just want to be able to say that I'm a member. So I made a vow to God. Notice that whenever any of you joins this body, I always say very specifically and strategically that God has led you to plant your life here. Because that's what this is. That God is planting you in this field for you to grow, for you to be a part of this field and all that this field has to to offer you. He didn't put you on the outside to look in. He planted you here to grow and to be a part. So you think to yourself, well, Who has had the greatest impact on your life spiritually? Who are the people that have had the greatest impact on you as a follower of Christ? Who are the people whose maybe that's just their witness that you see from afar? Maybe it's actually spending time with them, being a part of their lives. Maybe they're in your Sunday school class. Maybe they're, I don't know who they are. Maybe they're related to you. Maybe they're not. Maybe it was somebody from back in your past. But for me, there's one characteristic that marks all of those people. All the people who greatly impact my life share one specific trait in common. They all take God very seriously. You see, because a person that doesn't take God seriously, they have no impact. I mean, they're just sitting in the plane, pretending to fly. Their lives aren't. Sharpening the lives around them. Their testimony isn't encouraging and edifying the people who are there. They're, they're just there. But when people take God seriously, it's almost like God then takes them seriously. Verse 7, for the multitude of dreams in many words... There's also vanity. Maybe the most unique statement in all of this passage is verse 7. The best literal interpretation that I've been able to find, uh, that it's as if in the Hebrew what Solomon is saying is, is that 
in this multitude of dreams, it's like verbal doodling. It's like when I read verse 7, here's what I think about. I think about how thankful I am that I don't have to sit where you sit so oftentimes. Because when I sit out there, sometimes it can be hard to focus because you see the person on your row that's got the pen and scribbling around junk on their paper, you know, and they're drawing little pictures and arrows and happy faces and things. But you know, God knows what you're writing on that paper. Why don't you, why don't you ask the folks who stay after service and clean the sanctuary what they find? Quite an expansive array of doodlement, I might say. And interestingly, no one ever writes their name. It's always anonymous doodling. To which I say, that's foolish. Write your name on it because it really doesn't matter what we think. The only one that matters knows. It's just a multitude of dreams. And all those words are just verbal doodling. But he ends with the statement, but after all this, just fear God. Just fear God. That word fear is the same word for awe. Just be in awe of God. Just fear Him. Remember back in Exodus 3 when Moses encounters God at the burning bush, the most unlikely of heroes. I mean, Moses just seems like the last person on earth that God would choose. But there he is before the burning bush. And here's what the Bible says. Now listen closely in light of what we've said. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, he called to him in the midst of the bush and he said, Moses, Moses. And then Moses responded and said, here I am. And then the Lord said, do not draw near to this place. He didn't say, hey, why don't you rush over here and give me a hug? Why don't you just, you know, start, you know, telling me how you feel. Don't The first thing God says is, hey, back up. Don't rush in. Beware. Don't come too close. Take your sandals off. Because the ground that you are on is holy. Not because there's anything special about the ground, because of the person who's there on the ground. You see? Notice. And Moses then responds in verse 6. He says, moreover, he said, I am God, the Lord says, The God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That's why the ground's holy. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. You see, when you encounter God, when the plane takes off in worship, awe sets in. Moses, in one simple instruction, knew exactly how to respond to God. To which you might say to yourself, oh, you know, 
That's the Old Testament. That's before Jesus. I mean, now we can just come boldly into His presence. Isn't that a wonderful truth? Aren't you so thankful for that this morning? Yes, you can. But my question for you is, has God changed? Is the God that we've come here to worship in a new covenant relationship this morning not still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? You don't think the ground that He dwells on is still holy? Oh, yes, it is. You think He's any less magnificent? You think His glory has been reduced by the gift of His Son, Jesus? No, it's been elevated. It's been increased. It's, it's been... It's been, the veil has been torn. So now we have an opportunity to see more of what's always been there than we've ever been able to see before. You see, the new covenant relationship would be more like maybe what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 where he says about Jesus that he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created and are in heaven that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things and in Him all things consist. That God today... Yesterday, forever, is worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our sacrifice. He's worthy of our preparation. He's worthy of our participation. He's worthy of our promises. He's worthy of our affection. He's worthy of our awe. He's worthy, worthy, worthy. And that's why forever and ever and ever, the heavens declare, worthy are you, O Lord, because you're worth it. Because you were made to be worshipped. So you don't tritely trample across the privilege that the blood of Christ has bought you. Well, now that we're all thoroughly bummed out this morning. Let's just end by looking at a passage of Scripture that has so many times lifted my heart up. If I were to count, it would be beyond my comprehension. You listen as I read. What would a man say who was, who had run from God, who had, who had blown it, who had not kept his vow, who he knew God and God knew him and he knew that and he had committed that he would do that which God has called him to do, that he said it publicly, he said it privately, he made that commitment, he set out to do it and he panicked. He panicked. And for all the horrible, wrong reasons he had in his heart, he bailed out on everything that God called him to do. And he finds himself in the most horrible pit a person could ever be in. And then revelation comes. And here's what the rebel prophet Jonah says in Jonah chapter 2. He says to God, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. And the floods, they surround me. And your billows and your waves, they pass over me. But then I said, I have been cast out of your sight. Yet I will look again towards your holy temple. 
Don't miss that, that he has seen it before and he will look again. And he says, the waters surround me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds are wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth at its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer went up to you into the holy temple. Then for any of you who's in the desert right now, or maybe you have a son or a daughter that's in the desert right now, and you think, I just, I don't know, I don't know what to tell them. I don't know what to pray anymore. I don't know how to keep pushing. I'm so broken over the fact that they just keep running and running. They keep, they know that God's called them to do something. They keep jumping overboard and jumping overboard. Then listen to me. You pray that God will make known to them the truth of Jonah chapter 2 verse 8 because this is so amazing. Jonah says, at the end of this journey, at the end of this This cycle of doom. He says, those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. Think about that. The mercy is there. The mercy is available, but it's the pursuit of worthless idols. You forsake your own mercy. Pray, God, I pray that my my wayward son or my wayward daughter would realize that their pursuit of worthlessness is forsaking their own mercy. That God loves them and He cares for them, just like He loves you and He loves me. And when we worship at the altar of worthless idols, we forsake our own mercy. Mercy, that his unlimited bank account of mercy is at our disposal and we choose to say no. But Jonah says, but I will sacrifice to you, Lord, with a voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. He says, I will keep my commitment to you. I will renew again what you told me to do. And I said, no, I will accomplish that which I promised to do, Lord. And he ends by saying, because salvation is of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, listen to me closely. You this morning, no matter where you are, no matter how far you've gone into that, No matter how hopeless it may seem. God loves you. And His arms are open for you to come to Him. And so if you leave this time bloodied and bruised by conviction and you fail to respond with repentance... You offend the holy God whose unlimited mercy is at your disposal right now. All you have to do is repent. And God says that he is faithful and just to cleanse you of all of your unrighteousness. Now, if that's not the greatest news that anyone could ever share, I don't know what is. And so you be sure 
you be sure that whatever God has said to you this morning, you properly and rightly respond. Let's stand and bow our heads. Father, we stand here in the the stillness of this moment. God, it's it's a hard word, Lord, in Ecclesiastes 5. Father, you're so clear and so direct with us, and we thank you and we praise you for it. Lord, we need it. God, we need it. And Lord, lest we get puffed up and stiff-necked about all the great things that you do here, Lord, and we think that we're this great people, Lord God. Thank you for reminding us that we need you every moment to keep us in step with you, Father. That we could talk for years about walking in the Spirit and it would yield nothing. If we're not humble before you and sensitive to what you're saying. So, Lord God, right now, I don't know who you've spoken to and what you've said. But I do know that the opportunity for repentance is open to all, and that the floodgates of your mercy. Wait to burst forth upon every life that calls out to you. And so whether it be come to you this morning for salvation, whether it be respond to you in baptism, because we've been putting it off and putting it off and we're not doing that, we're not going to, we're not going to leave another day. It's time to get baptized. If it's to plant our lives here, You see, God, only you would call a person to plant their life on a morning like this morning. But Lord, every one of us that's a member of this church has done exactly that. And so, Lord God, you do what only you can do. And we will respond accordingly for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.